Dutton playing politics with the voice stoves the new culture war front. Is it time to end the free ride? And good news on soft plastics. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me here with Germanicus, firmly ensconced and doing the full zombie eye sleep on her lap, <laughs> is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, my wife and your friend, <laughs> Van Vadim. I am your friend. I am a friend to the world. Yes, indeed. You know, it's interesting, Van, we get correspondence from listeners. Uh, we got one last night that was so effusive, uh, an email from a listener about your book, Yay! Uh, about the show, about how they use the, use the podcast to talk to people in their workplace about joining up. And, you know, Joining a union, that is. Yeah, like, absolutely. Not a cult. Not a cult. <laughs> not a cult. And certainly not QAnon. Oh, I read your book about QAnon. I now think I might join it is really not what I'm going for. By the way, that has never happened. No, and in fact, they tried to give uh, a copy, an audio copy of your book to a member of their family who has gone a bit, gone a bit quonker. Yes, gone was, a bit quonker, gone a bit rabbit holy. And was, uh, was uh, rebuffed in their attempt, but they have not given up on their family member Thanks to your book. So. I've got to say the story from one of my uh, Facebook community who told me that she was playing it um, in her backyard, the audiobook of QAnon and On, because she's got cooker neighbours who've, you know, tried to QAnon her before. So she's been playing my book at volume and I was just like, this is, this is, I've, I've done it now. I've made it. I want nothing else in life. This is as good as it gets. Well, I, I loved the fact that he was also using this podcast to have conversations in the workplace about joining up to, to your union. So a, a big shout out to all the delegates and organizers who, uh, who use this podcast for that reason. There will be some discussion about union issues uh, in this episode. I bet you're surprised, guys. <laughs> you're surprised? And, of course, if you're not a member of your union and this is the first time you've listened to us, despite the fact this is our 118th episode of the week on Wednesday. Gunning for that million downloads, Benny. We're gonna, we should reach it oh, this yeah, year. Absolutely. So if you want to help us reach it faster so we can get the party started earlier, please recommend the show to a friend. Absolutely. And join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's WRW. But, of course, fam, we are taking the week on Wednesday on the road this year between the 22nd of February and the 15th of March. The the mountain is going to... Uh, is going the Adelaide to, Hills. Well, I was going to say to the Malinowskis. Hey, that's even better. I'm sorry I cut off your joke. I should have believed. No, that's all right. Uh, you know, we will take the mountain to Malinowskis and we will go to the Adelaide Fringe we will do the four Wednesdays between the 22nd of February and the 15th of March in the great city uh, of Adelaide. Really looking forward to it. It's going to be In fantastic. a yurt. I We're going to be doing the show in a yurt. It's a like five o'clock-ish show yeah. and we are going to actually be in an actual yurt and we'll, we really can't wait because we've had such a great time during doing live shows. We did the Melbourne Fringe, which was hugely successful and, you know, met people who are part of the show's community in the audience afterwards and that was great. And we did the Interesting Festival in Wagga. That was wonderful. And we just really like the vibe of being around people who are interested in the show and yeah. in the kind of stuff we talk about is superb. Absolutely, and tickets are available. It all gets now. very comradely. <laughs> tickets are available now. There is a scale pricing, so whatever price point you're at, there is uh, an opportunity for you to participate. As always, you know the week on Wednesday, uh, as you as our regular listeners will know, is uh, not a money making venture for us. Uh, and uh, I can guarantee you that the Adelaide Fringe Festival won't be a big money spinner for us either, <laughs> uh, given it's a seven hour drive uh, at least from our home. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we're going because we love it. And I've got to say this, if you've never done festival season in Adelaide, which is over the February-March period, it's really something you should do. Like a lot of Australians are rediscovering their love of domestic tourism in yeah. the wake of the pandemic. And one, if you've never been to Adelaide, you should go because it's lovely. Everybody has such delightful manners. Indeed. But the, even if they do that weird thing with their A's, they have plants and go dancing, which <laughs> is charming. Um, but... Festival season is incredible. You get Adelaide Writers Week. They bring in some of the biggest writers in the world. 
great debates, really interesting events. There's Wim Adelaide, which is the World Music Festival. There's obviously the Fringe. There's the International Festival, and it's huge, spectacular events. There's something to do with cars, which I'm sure is great for people who are into cars, like good on you. Um, and the, it's, yeah, it's really magical. And because the weather is so dry at that time of year, you get these beautiful balmy nights and get to see just incredible talent doing interesting things. And you can come along, join us in the yurt, uh, fully enclosed. I, I believe it will be air-conditioned, so if it is too balmy, you will be nice and cool. And let us know if there are Adelaide identities who you think we should have on the show. You know, we're, we're pulling together some ideas now. We've got a month before our first Adelaide Fringe Festival live show. Uh, so let us know what you'd like to come and see, uh, whether you're from Adelaide or you're going to be in town uh, to come and see us. And, of course, they are recordings of the podcast. Absolutely. So if you can't make it to Adelaide, you'll be able to listen as yeah. we upload them after yep. we do them. Absolutely. You'll, uh, you'll hear them within a few hours of them actually going live. But of course, Van, you know, we should talk about some of the big issues because even though it is summer, the news cycle is starting to fire up here in Australia. Uh, and it's been interesting. I wish you wouldn't use the word summer and fire up <laughs> and Australia in the same sentence. Well, touch some wood, everybody, but not in a dangerous place. Yes, no. I mean, the good news is there hasn't been much in in that regard uh, in terms of bushfires this summer. Although there's been lots of flooding and there may well be more flooding for more areas. And if you are in a flood zone, please do listen to and take the advice of local authorities uh, because we do want everyone who listens to the week on Wednesday to be safe and well. Uh, and we know that there are many parts of the country that are being affected at the moment. But, you know, there is, there is a new story that I was a bit surprised has continued on for the last 10 days or so. And we talk, we've talked about it briefly already this year. But Peter Dutton has come out hard, uh, really attacking the voice from a procedural uh, angle, which you know has shocked a lot of people, partly because of how disingenuous it really is. Uh, of course, Peter Dutton has a long history in this space uh, of, you know, he, he walked out of the apology to the Stolen Generations. Uh, there's been many reports about his behaviour uh, as uh, a member of the police, Queensland Police Force uh, in relation to indi Indigenous communities as well uh, that have not been particularly complimentary. I won't repeat those here. You can find those online for yourself. But he has really ramped up in the last 10 days. He put out an open letter asking questions that he already knew the answers to or could have easily Googled. Uh, he admits to having many meetings with the Prime Minister about the voice, uh, where he could have asked those questions in person. In fact, Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, didn't have a copy of the letter before, uh, before Peter Dutton actually released it to the media. The ABC interviewed Senator Jane Hume, who was sent out to kind of spin on behalf of Peter Dutton, uh, and and she sort of tried to put this idea, oh, there's no detail, where's the detail, which is the basic tenor of Dutton's attack. Oh, it is absolutely the most disingenuous engagement in all Australian politics. So the line that they're running is, oh, there's not enough detail, oh, there's not enough detail. Well, Marsha Langton, who knows one or two things about, uh, you know, reconciliation, Indigenous Australia and the boys, had an extraordinary piece in the Saturday paper, which I do encourage every Australian to read. I do not believe it is currently behind a paywall, which came out on the 8th, where she was just like, "What? this is an appalling, you know, cynical mm. culture war line because all of this, all of the detail about the voice has been apparent for months, years. Yeah. Like there was a really long considered process of consultation and engagement and involvement that developed the whole voice structure. There's like 200 pages from reports that were tabled to the government when Peter Dutton was in the government Yeah, that it's really on him to have read involving like hundreds of stakeholders and this really in-depth process. And she was just, you know, scathing, I think, of, of this dismissal and this pretense, and it is genuine pretense that there's no detail. What they're relying on the Liberals 
is a, a short attention span electorate of people to go, oh, well, there is no detail when it's like how if there are 200 pages of detail and that's available to you, it's not really on you to blame everybody else for the fact that you can't be bothered to do the reading and then say that's the reason why you don't support the policy. Well, this was the point that was made by the ABC uh, interviewer of Jane Hume was that he was able to find the answers to all of Peter Dutton's questions just by Googling uh, the voice. And, in fact, we've posted on the Week on Wednesday Facebook page an article by The Guardian which outlines answers to almost all of the questions that Peter Dutton put in his open letter that was published months ago and then re-updated and published again, uh, I I think in 2023, possibly late 2022. Um, but that's the point, right? The information is there. Jane Hume has been out there spinning hard for Peter Dutton on this. It's happened again just today. The reason why I've brought it up again, it, despite Marsha Langton's amazing piece in the Saturday paper now being sort of 10 days old, is that Peter Dutton's continuing to push this line. Oh, it is sickening. It is absolutely sickening. I have never seen the Australian people played for such mugs by a party leader in living memory, left, right or indifferent. It is just completely appalling. And what it really gets down to for Australians, I think, is a matter of trust. Mm. Like you don't have to read all 200 pages of the recommendations to be across the detail. People lead busy lives and that does represent a re- like a research project yeah. and, and, you know, reading task of some commitment. But, but say- who do you trust? Do you trust the long involved consultative period where Australia's best minds in this policy space came together with legitimacy, sincerity, and more importantly, good faith to put a constructive proposal in front of the Australian people? Or do you trust Peter Dutton, I've been given the documents 100,000 times and I'm just going to pretend they don't exist? And, of course, the conservative media have been running this hard. Just just through my own examination of the pages of uh, like Sky, The Australian, 2GB, they're running multiple stories a day pushing that Dutton line about lack of detail. And, and it just, you know, it's so disingenuous. Uh, the same time they push that line, they bring in commentators who talk about why it would be anti-democratic and put a whole range of misinformation tropes onto the pages of their websites, onto their uh, radio broadcasts onto their TV broadcasts. 200 pages of reports submitted to Peter Dutton through a long democratic consultative process going through every conceivable policy step. This It is, it is enraging. It is just so disgracefully patronising. And I want to I talk about two other things on this topic before we move on. One is the details... You don't have to read all 200 pages of the report because I'm going to read you the key elements right now because it's actually really, really simple. The simple question that's going to be put is we should consider asking our fellow Australians something as simple as do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? That's going to be the question is going to be something like that. Three statements that would be added to the Constitution. There should be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. That's one. Two, it may represent, it may make representations to Parliament and the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Two, the third one is the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers, and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Three very simple propositions. Now, Everything that the parliament does is subject to the constitution. So there's no, that little bit where it says subject to this constitution, there's nothing unusual about that. Everything parliament does is subject to the constitution. But I want to point out too, you know, you've mentioned the thousands of people, the the 18 months of consultation and the rest of it. The report recommends the voice would have 24 members and it would be gender balanced. The model proposes two members from each state the Northern Territory, the ACT, and Torres Strait. Further five members would represent remote areas due to their unique needs, one from each of the Northern Territory, WA, Queensland, South Australia, and New South Wales, from the remote parts of those states. An additional member would be representative of the significant population of Torres Strait Islanders 
live on mainland Australia. Members would serve four-year terms, with half the membership determined every two years. There would be a limit of two consecutive terms for each member. Two co-chairs of a different gender to one another would be selected by the members of The Voice every two years. The National Voice would have two permanent advisory groups, one on youth and one on disability, and a small ethics council to advise on probity and governance. The National Voice would be an advisory body to the Australian Parliament and government. It would not deliver services, manage government funding, or be a clearinghouse for research, or mediate between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. Now, Anthony Albanese was asked today, would there be an office of The Voice to which he said there may well need to be to provide staffing and resources for this body to do its work. Not unusual in any way, shape or form. You'll find any number of government programs where there is an office providing logistics and administrative support. It's very straightforward. That I've just read out exactly the core elements of it. If you're unsure about the detail, have a look at the links. If you want to get into the 200 pages, by all means do, you would think that the leader... They're linked to in that Marshall Langton piece. And you would think that the leader of the opposition, given that his junior coalition partner, the Nationals, have federally already voted as a party room to vote against the voice, despite all of Dutton's, oh, well, we can't make a decision because we haven't seen the time. We can't make a decision because we haven't seen the question. The Nationals have made their decision nationally, and they're going to say no. This has cost them a member of parliament. Andrew G has quit the Nationals federally. He's now sitting as an independent. And in WA, where the voice already commands a two-to-one majority support, the WA Nationals, who are themselves the larger coalition partner in opposition over there, have said that they will support the voice. So all of this stuff that Dutton's doing is really building up to what I think Ben, and, and you might say, well, you know, you're being a bit cynical here, Ben, but Dutton... I I mean, I have said that to you before. <laughs> Dutton was asked last year, when will the Liberals have a position? And it was around sort of the back end of the year, October, November, and you had Liberals like Bridget Archer say there should be a conscience vote, Andrew Bragg, who's a senator from New South Wales. I'd like to point out that whatever my ideological criticisms of Bridget Archer and Andrew Bragg, and I have many. Oh, me too. They know how to read a poll. Yeah. And look, Andrew Bragg and I disagree on a lot of things. And don't even get me started on his views about superannuation. The man couldn't be more wrong on that. Let me tell you, if you (laughs) want to have a really interesting time with Ben that doesn't involve you know, referring to the, the you know, sort of repetitive nature of the superannuation argument, do not bring up <laughs> Andrew Bragg because it can be, I mean, lengthy and I married him. I mean, that's my burden, but oh, yeah. But look, he is correct on this idea that, you know, the Liberal Party should have a conscience vote. That's their tradition. That's the sort of thing they'll do. Dutton was asked, well, when, how will the Liberals come to a view? And at the end of last year he said, that the party would have a position sometime early in 2023 after a party room meeting. Now, straight out of the blocks, before most of the country is even back at work, Peter Dutton is out there undermining the concept of the voice, undermining the arguments for a yes vote, having Jane Hume go out and spin for him about why the no vote should get funding from government. This is the other thing that strikes me as just bizarre, that if you supported the voice, Peter, then you why would you argue that both sides should be funded from the government? The government's view is there should be a yes vote, there should be, a, so it should be funded. Anyway, I think he's laying the groundwork to try and push the Liberals into a no position. Oh, absolutely, that's what he's doing. And I've got to say, I think it's incredibly poor politics like, it's just poor strategically from Dutton. I get that they probably think they're brilliant. Their whole, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll say there's no detail because Australians like detail and they like to feel like they own an issue and oh, you can't commit to something and it's an easy out if you're a bit racist. Like, if you're a bit racist, you don't want to go, oh, I just want to deny rights to Aboriginal people. Mm. You want to say, oh, well, I mean, there's no detail is a lot better than just being overtly racist because racism, I don't know, Ben, is bad. It people- is bad really don't like it, especially not in this country. And where it persists, oh, it's ugly and unpopular, 
So this is, you can imagine this has been strategized at like horrible person HQ where it's like, oh, yeah, this is an absolute winner. But Australia's moved on, Pete, and we have the discussion all the time about how the teal movement in particular plays to that traditional Menzies liberal sentiment Mm. of being economically conservative, which obviously you and I oppose with every cell of our being, but socially progressive, like not pathologically hating Mm. trans people, for example, or persecuting the lives of the LGBTQIA community in any direction and maybe hold the horses here, please, not being racist. Well, Monique Ryan was actually in a debate with Jane Hume I think it was on radio on this on, about the voice precisely for that reason right precisely because there is there is a menzian liberal grouping in this country that the teals obviously appeal to and peter dutton is clearly trying as we've talked before trying to do that polyphonic speech but he's losing on this one let me tell you because that debate elements of that debate at one point Jane Hume said, "Well, I just, I'm just concerned there won't be a brochure for the for the no vote that it outlines the, you know, the potential risks of changing the constitution." And Monique Ryan said, well, "You're a member of Parliament. If you want to put out a brochure, put out a brochure. If you want to support the no vote, support the no vote, Jane." Oh well, you know, you shouldn't assume how I'm going to vote. Well, sorry, but the only people, the only people who I'm seeing get media coverage about this idea about any position other than, yes, there should be a voice, is this kind of wishy-washy, there's no detail, or maybe the no vote needs some support, or can't have a proper debate unless they get some money too. Yeah, can't have a constitutional campaign without a pamphlet. Like the only people having that, putting forward that position, are the hardcore conservatives with Peter Dutton and people in his party, and not even everyone in his party. We've already mentioned a couple. I won't talk about them again. But this is clearly, as you say, Peter Dutton trying to walk a line. You know, I'd like Peter Dutton to just be really clear. Does he support the concept of a voice to parliament? And he should just say, I support the concept of a voice to parliament. I will be voting yes to, to constitutional reform, and I will work with the government because he's already admitted that he's had lots of meetings with Anthony Albanese about this topic. He's already admitted that Anthony Albanese brought him into the tent to try and make sure this works. Now, today, he's out there going, well, why don't we have legislation before Parliament already? It's like, because you do these things in the proper order, Peter. You have your consultation. You bring it to the people. You have your referendum. Then you pass your enacting laws. It's not like Parliament sat before the Constitution was written and went, okay, now we're going to do a detailed thing about, you know, import duties. That's not how it worked. (laughs) That's not how it worked. Uh, It's so interesting because it's – because I just – I keep trying to work out what the politics are and what Dutton possibly thinks he's doing. And is he counting – does he believe in the fantasy of the silent – Majority, this you know, silent Australian majority who are secretly a bit racist. Like, is that is that the gamble here that there Maybe. are all of these people who didn't vote Liberal in the last election just because they don't like Scott Morrison? And it's like you don't think Scott Morrison was a bit emblematic for other tensions, Peter? Like, just anyway, okay. So you're going to try and build a constituency for the Liberal Party because the behaviour of an opposition is always about the next election. Yeah. All right, that's why oppositions make decisions that they do. Sometimes they go along with things that they're not ideologically simpatico with because it's about finding, it's about winning the centre because we have universal enfranchisement, aka compulsory voting, and everybody has to vote. Right? If you don't win the centre, you don't win the government. That is the reality in this country. That's how numbers work. Yeah. And but you pick your battles, like you pick your points of differentiation. So when you go to an election, you can go, we were the party. That that took this position, and this is a position we'll take to government. And you see, you can see why the Nationals federally, with their their strategy, is never to try and win government in their own right. No, like they don't even run candidates in most most seats. They're really concentrated on on a handful of seats, both lower and upper house, in a handful of regions around the country, and in those regions. That's that's where they are. That's who they are. They are a minor party 
that gets government ministries by being in coalition. So you can see why they're happy to say no, because they've obviously looked at some of those constituencies and gone, actually, we think the no vote is probably going to be higher in, in places like Maranoa than it is other, in other places. And that's in the interests of David Littleproud, who I believe is the member for there. Yeah. Maranoa, the safest conservative seat in the country. To, to say, well, if that's what my constituents want. Then that's what I'm going to support. Yeah. Because they only have to placate their constituents. They're not trying to win the center. That's right. You know, and that's how, that's the difference between minor and major pol- like parties in this country is that if you want to form government, you've got to have the centre. If you want to exert legislative influence from a minority position, you've got to be in a coalition. And this may explain why the Labor Party is never going to be in coalition with the Greens, yet the Greens keep insisting that that would be a great idea. <laughs> yep, no, wrong. It's a really it's a really interesting concept and I think it's a really uh, interesting place for Australia in terms of what our nation will look like in 2024 and beyond. Uh, you know, Peter Dutton today was saying, well, what happens if it fails? And Anthony Albanese's point was, well, I'm campaigning for it to succeed. Um, Peter Dutton can go out there going, well, what if it fails? What if it fails? Why doesn't he spend some more time going, hey, let's make this thing work? Why does he spend some more time going, let's actually make it happen? Let's get a voice. Let's legislate for if it. If it is leading two to one, in WA. WA, that's a pretty convincing Democratic majority. And quite honestly, I think, I think years, I think there's a distortion field that goes on with conservative media in this country. Oh, yeah. That portrays conservative positions as if they're mainstream positions when even liberal voters, and this is what the Teals have revealed absolutely, that even people who vote liberal or who might be tribal liberal voters because mm. of, you know, their, ideological conception of capitalism or whatever, okay, they actually want to live in a harmonious multicultural community because multicultural communities are actually, like, great. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that we are learning um, through, like, the kind of detailed polling that you get now is that once communities become cosmopolitan, they don't give it up. Like, cosmopolitan values are for life. Once you live in a community where diversity isn't an external threat but an internal reality, you love it because your life is interesting. Your environment is interesting. Your food is better. The food is <laughs> the food is better. The social experiences are more varied. Mm. There's like more, you know, more novelty and nuance and discovery and all of these things. People like it. Yeah. And this idea of, and this is why I just find the whole Dutton thing so weird. It's like. Yes, I'm sure there are some really gross racist Australians who don't want the Aboriginal yeah. or Torres Strait Islander people to have anything, to have any kind of parity because their whole self-image resists on some insane, like fanciful mythology of white supremacy, yeah. you know, and that's because they can't feel superior in any other way. They're going to default to an insane race narrative. I mean, appalling and terrible and has no place in any kind of bond society. But I don't think that's the majority. It's certainly not the majority in WA. So if Peter Dutton is making his point of difference with the Australian Labor Party, currently the government, that he's going to facilitate a bit of racism, I think given how cosmopolitan Australian society has become, how we have had decades of like uh, of intense, sincere, engaged, widespread activism from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around constitutional recognition mm. and reconciliation and moving Australia forward with acknowledgement and honesty mm. about, you know, the, the legacy of racism in this country and colonialism and settler colonialism and white supremacy. I mean, I think the majority of Australians are more than ready <laughs> to process that. Yeah, I think we have the maturity, the confidence, not only the interest but also the overriding shared morality to go, well, yeah, that yeah, justice needs to be done. Well, I think I think, you know, the final word on this issue really should come from uh, uh, an indigenous Australian uh, and I'm going to choose Ken White, uh, who is a liberal who was uh a minister in the Morrison government who did actually do the voice report, who did take it to cabinet that Peter Dutton was part of, 
uh, who says, who has said quite clearly, the detail is there. Peter Dutton has the information available to him. Every Australian has that information available. It's online. There is no reason for us not to proceed and for people to not vote yes to having a voice. Uh, all of the concerns that people raise uh, are dealt with through that report process, through the detail that's available. Uh, and frankly, it's disingenuous for anyone to say otherwise. You know, there that's that's basically what Ken White has been saying. Uh, in the last 24 hours, he's come out again uh, because of Peter Dutton continuing to push this. So I think you're absolutely right, Van, and I think there are people in the Liberal Party, even in the rump that is the Conservative Liberal Party of Peter Dutton, who who do not want to be just a Conservative rump and do have some concept that Australia is, as you and I have said before, essentially a Hawkean, Menzian country, not a Dutton Latham country. <laughs> yeah, not a Dutton Latham country. And I've got to say, like, if you're listening to Rowan Dean and not two thirds of Western Australians, you are never going to be Prime Minister of this country. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Not ever. Yeah, that's right. Sky. Oh, that's a happy thought, isn't it? <laughs> Look, there are other cultural war fronts, though, we need to talk about as well. This is my favourite. Now, I want a new title. I want to be known as a culture war reporter. <laughs> well, let's, let's cross to our culture war correspondent, Van Batten, for the latest in the ever-evolving culture <laughs> war front. What, what, what new bizarre issue has the Sky News, Fox News, culture warriors thrown at us now? Gas stoves, Ben. Gas it's stoves. all about gas stoves. Oh, yeah. It is amazing. So a Democrat uh, administration appointee, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, on a committee to do with safety, a mm -hmm. public safety committee, yeah. uh, made a comment um, in an interview that the that gas stoves yep. are something that the government should really review um, in terms of the danger that they pose to households and citizens yep. and that the government should be looking at um, uh, uh, legislating a transition to induction stoves in homes. And, th and this, this resulted in quite an uh, extreme response from some uh, members of the Republican caucus and the the Fox News crew. Oh, it's totally amazing. So Ted Cruz, the, literally the world's most loathsome individual. Yeah. Um, and how Andrew, how Ben responds to Andrew Bragg on the subject of superannuation is me just the mere visage of Ted Cruz or his name, and I do apologise. But Ted Cruz, of course, who's just the world's slimiest individual from Senator from Texas and a Republican, um, he has turned you know, this suggestion that gas stoves should be phased out into a government overreach, they're coming for our guns, now they're coming for our gas stoves and they're trying to turn the boys into girls and it's all part of the same paranoia about big government coming to take the things you really love away. A hundred bucks says that Ted Cruz has never cooked a meal for himself on a gas, electric, induction or otherwise stove in his life. Um, and you have the likes of Jim Jordan, who's just a repulsive congressional representative, January 6th-type human, mm. um, who put out a, a meme saying, God, guns, gas stoves. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, another loathsome individual, former press secretary for Donald Trump, who's now the governor of Arkansas, was like, I will never let the arm of big government reach into your home. And it's like that's very interesting given the fact that uh, 40% of Arkansas's budget comes from federal taxes and mostly Californians, but okay, Sarah, no problem. Um, and it's become this big thing about how, oh, you know, the government want to take your gas stove from you. And the number of extremely rich individuals who don't cook for themselves arguing this line I think is a bit of a dead giveaway for total beat up. But do you know what's been really interesting, Ben? Mm, what? I, I, I'm aware of the fact that natural gas is, of course, a fossil fuel, mm. but I wasn't aware until the Conservatives kicked off this culture war front that gas stoves are, in fact, 
quite dangerous in the home. And the presence of gas in uh, heating and particularly in cooking is uh, a respiratory threat. In fact, studies, the reason why this official made this statement in America is because there is an attributable link of childhood asthma to the presence of gas stoves in the home. And I didn't know this either, that even when you're not cooking with gas, as it were, merely the presence of gas um, supply in the home leaks gas into the home. And it's made me think about since I had COVID and I've developed a bit of a cough and we have gas in our mm. home, whether the presence of that gas might be exacerbating damage done to me by having that COVID infection, I, I don't know. Mm. And guess what? I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to say it's officially the truth, but it's obviously made me think about mm. the safety of having gas. Well, these studies, and there's now been multiple studies since 2018, uh, but they've found that it, it increases the, the burden of asthma by 12% which is roughly the same as having a smoker in your household if you're a non-smoker. So this is, I mean, that's quite a significant uh, respiratory risk. And, and you know, the funny thing is, Van, that while the Americans have all gone um, typically Americana about this uh, with, their, with their cultural approach, you know, just quietly in the background here in Australia, uh, we've had governments making you know, moves on this issue. Uh, and I really wasn't aware of that until we, we started to see all this sort of cultural whip up. Um, and the reality is not only is it better for your personal health. Your lungs. Your lungs. Better for the environment. Uh, it's also better for your wallet. Uh, and, and fundamentally in places like the ACT and in Victoria, there are roadmaps to transitioning away from gas. Yeah, in the ACT, they've been um, they've regulated that they are they are phasing out uh, gas uh, like gas stoves yeah. in the ACT to replace them with induction cooking. Induction cooking is much more energy efficient and doesn't provoke a <laughs> respiratory problem. And it's interesting because the defense of gas stoves has always been, oh, well, chefs use them because the temperature control is more precise. Well, like most things that are bad for us, technology tends to move on and solve problems. And I, I was reading Neil Perry cooks with an induction uh, stovetop. And it's like, well, if Neil, if it's good enough for Neil Perry, a human being whose entire wealth and reputation rests on his ability to cook well, if Neil Perry is using an induction stovetop, I think the rest of us can can probably feel confident that that's where the future lies. But it's really... I mean, one of the other things about this is that, like, with all the culture war issues, there's always somebody who's gaining, right? And in America, the, you know, unsurprisingly, there is a gas lobby. And, no. And unsurprisingly. Oh, once, look at my shocked face. I know. Once those reports started coming out, and, you know, it's 2023 now, the report that I quoted was from 2018. So this information about the health issues and the environmental issues this has all been circulating out for some time. But since 2020, the gas lobby in America has been paying social media influencers to promote gas. Now, I want to be really clear here. Nobody has approached us or paid us or given us any money to back gas or induction or one or the other. That's not what's happened here. But there are, and I don't know who they are, but you could probably guess anybody who's, you know, there was one one person I saw had taped themselves to a gas stove and gone on Fox News to say that he would never give up his gas stove. One might ask the question, has he received any form of sponsorship to do that, given how prominent the gas gas stove branding was? But, you know, th there is even, even in Australia, where we sometimes like to think of ourselves as being a bit less you know, a bit less chaotic, a bit less entrenched in the culture wars. ExxonMobil, who, of course, do dig a lot of gas out of the ground, dig a lot of gas out of the seabeds, have warned that Victoria's transition away from gas could lead to shortages and people being unable to heat their homes, manufacturing not being able to access gas. You know, and it's just I literally bizarre. had no idea the gas industry was keeping the sky from falling in. Well, it turns out, turns out that that's their view. Um, that is their takes, view. It takes a lot of hot air to keep the sky up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, just one of these details. So 
with the whole, oh, well, it's just going to destroy cuisine. They've been running this line about it'll mean the end of wok cooking. Do you love this? Yeah, right. Oh, it'll be the end of wok cooking. And it's like you can use a flat-bottomed wok on an induction stovetop and rather than picking up the wok and moving the wok, you use the utensils to move the food. It's amazing. It's it's just bizarre. And, and I want to I want to point out that all of this kind of nonsensical, you know, culture war issue about gas stoves. At the end of the day, we're either a culture that follows science and what's good for us, both health in terms of our health, our environment, but also financially. Like the Victorian government has done this work on a roadmap where it's going to end subsidies for gas connections. It's going to help homes shift to electric. And there's a beautiful little link that does a side-by-side comparison about if you have the same appliances with the same um, efficiency ratings on gas versus electric, how much money you save. Um, and even if it's the same basic efficiency rating, you save money going to electric. So you save money, you save emissions. 17% of Victoria's emissions are from gas appliances used in the home. Yeah, these are, these are numbers. 17%. Yeah, these are, so there's a huge, huge environmental upside to this as well. But the financial upside from in an individual household is up to $3,000 a year. So, you know, like that's a number of things you've got to do. It's not just your stovetop. God guns, gas, gas stoves, Ben. But this is the point, you know, like when we start to talk about these issues, who is benefiting from making the case against the science? Well, clearly there are companies who will benefit from that. They are gas companies. And, and in America, we know the gas lobby is huge. You know, we know you can, you only have to look at the donor reports to see how oil and gas pumps cash into congressional, senatorial, and presidential campaigns over there. Joe Manchin, who's that conservative Democrat from West Virginia, has made a statement, and he's like he's a fossil fuel puppet, by the way, yeah. about, oh, yeah, look, I just don't know how I feel about the government teaching and telling people how they should cook. And it's like, well, how do you feel about seatbelts, Joe? <laughs> because we decided that seatbelts were necessary to stop people from dying in car accidents and we wanted to minimise risk and we have road safety standards. In fact, we have building codes in order to minimise trip hazards and yep. to ensure that people can get out of buildings if they're on fire or, God help them, be able to access a building if they're in a wheelchair. Like all of these things are sort of really important about minimising risk and a shared responsibility for collective safety, which is why we make regulations and uh, what am I looking for here? Invented government in the first place. And also to do the work to transition. There was a time when we cooked with dung, you know, <laughs> and wood and coal. And, you know, we don't have the government providing wood to your front door if you want to cook with wood. The government has to currently put in the gas pipelines if you want to have gas cooking. Now, if that's not in the interests of people and the government can demonstrate that, why would the government continue to, to provide that? It doesn't make any sense. It's like saying, well, the government should have a man with a horse and cart bring me a bucket of coal every day so I can light my coal-fired stove. That's a ridiculous concept. It is. It is really very strange. And it just goes to show, you know, these culture war issues, and I can say this as a culture war reporter. Culture war reporter. They're all about they're all about an imagined identity of what a culture is that's under threat, you know, and feeding people this image of themselves in this sort of secure vision of what their lives, even if it's completely unrepresentative of what their lives are really like. Like just the idea of Donald Trump, a man with a gold toilet, insisting on his right to maintain a gas gas stove. I'm just like, when was the last time you fried something, buddy? Like, <laughs> but it's this image of, oh, you know, this is tied into what I know and and it, they call it the culturalist right mm. because it's not what we understand to be the traditional far right is police's entry on the basis of race, yeah. Nazis, yeah, yeah. fascists, you know, removing, exterminating minorities, groups of people, horrendous. The new far right is into this cultural fantasy 
of what the dominant culture should look like. And it's pretty white and it's pretty English-speaking and it's dominated by men. But its barriers to entry are how much are you willing to fight for this Norman Rockwell fantasy vision of what it means to be American or Australian or Western or anything that we feed to you. And it's really, it's creepy. And then that kind of brings me to our next our next topic because the idea of what it is to be Western uh, is actually really different in different parts of democratic Western countries. It is, isn't it? It's, it's almost like, you know, uh, his, the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggle. And, and that's really the point I want to make because just this week there's been discussions about what, what is often called the free rider effect, right? So very briefly, in, in Australia, we have 1.4 million people in unions. That represents about 12.5% of the workforce. Enterprise agreements and the award system, which are negotiated by unions on behalf of all workers that they'll be covered in a workplace or in an industry, covers between 40 and 50% of the workforce. So that the gap between 12.5% and the other people who are covered, they're traditionally called free riders, right? They get the benefits of union membership. They get the pay rises that come with the collective agreement. They get the pay rises that come with the minimum wage increase, but they don't pay anything towards the effort that goes into winning them. So this discussion has fired off this week because the ABS stats came out about union membership and the decline in density. Like I said, 1.4 million members, that's roughly the same number of members as there were two years ago, but the overall density has declined slightly. So the proportion of union members in the workforce is down slightly because there are, thankfully, more people in work. That's actually a good thing. Yay! What this means is that people are saying, well, hang on a minute. In some sectors, like in uh, in healthcare, for example, in aged care, as an example, you've got you've got unions going out running hugely expensive equal pay cases, uh, and the HSU in New South Wales has made the point that they've just won an equal pay case that will lift workers' wages by up to about ten thousand dollars a year, and yet they only have twenty five percent membership in aged care, fifty percent in the healthcare sector where they operate. But all of those workers will get that benefit. They're saying it doesn't make sense that the people who are going to benefit from this don't make some form of contribution. So they're arguing that there should be uh, either a bargaining fee that unions can put into agreements, currently illegal in this country. Thanks to John Howard. Thanks to John Howard. Quite common in some parts of the US, I should say. Oh, yeah, those great parts of the US where they have absolutely shocking poverty and treat working people like garbage, those parts. No, no, but the... the They've got gas stoves, Benny. But bargaining fees as something unions can charge is also common in other parts of the US, the non-poverty-stricken ones. Uh, where, what a coincidence. Where, where unions, hmm, I wonder if there's a correlation. And it is, you know, this is an idea that has been around before. You know, in parts of Europe, actually they compel people to be members of the union, not just pay a fee, not to, but you've... you've no ticket, be, no start. Yeah, like it's part of... The culture, right? Like we talk about Western culture. Which I personally support. You know, if you're going into an industry where your um, income, uh, your work conditions, your safety is administered by the union, you should be a member of the union. You know, like if that. Absolutely. And if you don't want to be a union member, don't go into that industry because it functions because of union participation. And, I mean, I just, I find it shocking that anybody would accept a pay rise that a union has fought for without being a member of that union because it's like, you know, and I'm sure that there are people, because they do exist, even if they're reprehensible, who have a little chuckle and go, ha, 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 ha. I didn't spend, you know, I didn't pay my dues and I got the pay Which are tax deductible, by the way. Yeah, which are totally tax deductible. Yeah. Um, I didn't pay my dues and I got the pay rise anyway. Ha, ha, ha. And it's like, well, you don't think this isn't completely unsustainable? Because if you keep using a service that you don't pay for, eventually that service ceases to exist because it is not financially sustainable because people like you are not making a contribution. And then what happens to you? Shall we have a look at what happens to de-unionised workers? Do we want to have a look at the workplaces where there's been 
union busting and what happens to their rights and entitlements. Because let me tell you something, you know, the the happy wicket that you're on at the moment, love, ceases to exist. Absolutely. And and you are part of that downfall. Look, you know, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union uh, National Secretary, Steve Murphy, has said, imagine walking into a fishing club or a footy club and demanding all the benefits without being a member. You wouldn't even get through the door. Imagine going into sh- into a shop and just helping yourself. Hmm, I wonder if the shop will continue to exist if people just help themselves to those things. Yeah. The United Workers Union Secretary, Tim Kennedy, said, as it currently stands, it's an expectation this minority of workers will carry the burden for up to 50 to 60% of the workforce. So you've got a lot of free riding going on. Oh, uh, it's, it's not on. Like what has always defined Australian culture is a commitment to fairness. Mm. Like this is such an important virtue and it doesn't matter if it's like behaviour in a reality television show or a backyard game of cricket. Like in this country, fairness is really important and something that we like to think defines us. You know, Australian egalitarianism, the reason why people's families who Mm. emigrated to this country did emigrate to this country was to have fair opportunities and a fair start. And the idea that you would take the benefits that somebody else has paid for and worked for and not make a contribution yourself, I just don't really, I find that deeply insulting to a, a sense of Australian greatness, frankly. Yeah. I think it denigrates our country for anyone to behave that way. Well, it's interesting because that's exactly what uh, Jared Hayes, the national president of the HSU, uh, said, that it's a moral issue of who we are. You know, it really is. And, and his, his union has higher density, 25% in, in aged care and 50% in, in health care. Those are much higher density numbers. So for him, it's not a question of the money. Uh, it's or even even membership numbers. It's a question of who we are as a people. You know, Sally McManus, uh, the secretary of the ACTU, um, you know, has has said that we have a pretty unique system, only replicated by the South of the United States. That's what you were talking about before, where we have to negotiate agreements, and then basically those people who don't contribute to it still get the benefits. And Michelle O'Neill, who's the president of the ACTU, has said that workers and employers should be free to negotiate on issues that matter to them and their workplaces. So this Howard-era ban on bargaining fees should be removed. Um, The ACTU hasn't come out as far as some of these unions have or as far as, say, the Victorian Trades Hall or Unions New South Wales, which are the state state peak bodies in those states, who have said there should be bargaining fees. Um, But they are saying if workers want to negotiate this into their agreements, they should be allowed to at the very least. And if employers, you know, it comes down to, I think, Van, a perception of what is the value of unions in our workplace uh, and the societal value. And the, there's a lot of what the union leaders who are raising these issues are talking about is that unions are fundamentally part of our community. And when you look at the polling and the research that gets done on people valuing unions, it, it's the majority of people value the role of unions. The majority of people think unions have a role in the workplace. The majority, vast majority of people think unions have a role in safety in the workplace, a role in negotiating wages in the workplace. But when it comes time to put their hand in their pocket, if they don't have to, and I can understand that for some people, if they go, well, I don't have to pay for this and I'm going to get the benefit anyway, they're not going to pay. So we've got to have a system that recognises the unions have a role in the workplace and that making a contribution to facilitate that role is in the benefit of everybody, not only in that workplace, but in the broader society. And if you're listening to this and you're not a member, you can join right now. You don't have to wait for any legislative change. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, and you can join your union today. Ben, should we talk about some good news? Oh, yeah, I love good news. I'm entirely pro-good news, and I've got a really great local news story. Let's hear it. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. So it's about one of my favourite subjects, which is plastic, and it's about soft plastic and the fact that soft plastic is recyclable, right? If you can scrunch a piece of plastic into a ball with your hand, that is a piece of soft plastic, and it can be turned into fuel, it can be remade, all kinds of things can go on with it. But, of course, what's happened is the Red Cycle Soft Plastics Recycling Program that used to run out of Coles and Woolworths has been suspended in various places. 
So Monash Council, good on you, Monash Council, uh, they have they've very quickly responded to the cessation of that service and they are uh, taking um, soft plastic recycling. So they're running a soft plastic recycling service at the Monash Recycling and Waste Centre and they're looking at extending soft plastic recycling drop-offs and pickups throughout the community because it is a massive issue. And even though they only started um, this, like this collection last year here, in I think only in December. Yeah, 19th of December. 19th of December. So far they've had 800 customers. They've recycled uh, 55 times 1,100 litre bins full of soft plastic, which is a lot, and there are 60,000 litres of soft plastic that won't be going into landfill. And this is great. And they're working with a local company called APR Plastics uh, to do their recycling Mm. and obviously looking at, closing that loop within the community and that economic loop within the community as well. So there can be facilities for soft plastic recycling and take that stuff out of landfill. And I think that's just absolutely fantastic. And I'd like, this has been an initiative, obviously, a lot of people in Monash, but led by the mayor, Tina Samaja, who has, this is one of her issues. And I think it's fantastic. And it's, this is the kind of stuff that can be done on a local level. Yeah. Like we have resources in Australian communities to take proactive steps on the environment, to close loops, to look at solutions, to get garbage out of landfill and for that to have an economic relationship and benefit to the community as well. Absolutely. And, of course, create jobs and opportunities for for local communities to improve their economic as well as their environmental condition. Imagine. Imagine that. You know, and, yes, we need, yes, inevitable Twitter guy, we do want to get plastic out of production completely. Yeah, of course. But as we transition, there are other things that we can do while our industries catch up to the overwhelming need to get rid of plastic. If you have listened to the show more than once, you will know I am not a huge fan. Of That's plastic. right. But speaking of huge fans, we do have many huge fans who listen to The Week on Wednesday. And we love you. Regularly. Love you all. Listen to the weekend rap that I do on a Sunday who have come to our Week on Wednesday live shows, who have watched our election night broadcasts, uh, who get uh, an email every time we do a podcast with some links, who have gone to our supporter page, which is buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, our supporter page, people can give one-off uh, contributions. They can give a buck a week, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. Uh, and all of that money goes into getting this podcast to more and more people, getting the message to more and more people, uh, and hopefully uh, getting more and more people joining their union, getting actively involved in their community and understanding the issues that we're trying to address each and every episode. And it's our cadre and our extend the reach, our cadre 20 bucks a month, extend the reach 10 bucks a month, who really make a huge difference and we want to acknowledge them Ben, you've got the names there. I do. Are you ready? Let's These go. are our cadre. <gasps> Shane Horsfall, Bronwyn, Narissa, Simon, no Twitter for me, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, Billy Three, McCabe, Cassandra Tui, Kristen Secluna, at Kerry Nash 20, Giota, Andrew Pascoe, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Evergreen Beast, Justin Dando, Donna Chapman, Fiona McNeil, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Gl- Kylie Phillips, at Givru Boris, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corrie, Christina Cole, at Leanne Shingles, Joe Fleming, Matt Bush, no relation, Linda Carverite, Kathy Birch, at Jakani, Greg Miller, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Gabe Kramer, Camille, Brash Daniels, Matthew Hadley, at Narungaman, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, at Red, White and Blue Lou, Tamara James, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Hello Banjo, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrett, at Katagal, Steph, at Jane C. Campbell, Karina Bali, Leone Gibbons, someone, and our Extend the Reach supporters are Helen, Andrew Bryan, Damien Marley, John DeHaan, Tanya George, Ivis Billet, Elian and Andrew, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, at Didims, Tri Dragon, Cameron, Vita W, Michelle Norton, someone, Kirsten Black, not on Twitter, Sarah, Tra- Amy Fawcett, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Nandita Hannum, Greg Martin, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Melanie Dinning, at Galvest, Love Your Work, Richard Graver, at Ross Kenner, 888, 
Kathy Burgess, Rodney Slab, Anna Uren at K Knight, Beck and Lola, Hello Lola, Megan Weckett, Sandy Hunnan at Ange Fennell, Laura Louise Hawker, Sharon Kelly, Tracy Lucas, Beck Cody, Bunkum Basher, Caddy Ward at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Bonegard at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Kier Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Graham Oxley, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Stuart Munn, Joe Lapino, Claire, Erica Pizzuti, Frank Nihus, Marit Mazritza at Kerrydale 68, Adrian Valente at Vic M. Bit. Marky Mark, I am so glad he's a fan. Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bates. Yes, a huge congratulations to all of you. The week on Wednesday has ticked over 700,000 downloads since our last episode, and we are rapidly approaching uh, that that million mark. Uh, We will get there this year, I have no doubt, if you continue to listen, like, share. You know, let us know your views about things like bargaining fees. Let us know your views about The Voice. Let us know your views about these cultural issues like gas stoves. But most importantly, discuss them with your friends, your family, your workmates, your colleagues, so that the issues are aired, so that we grow as a society. And hopefully you'll share this episode with people You'll enjoy it, and uh, you'll come along to the week on Wednesday live in Adelaide. Yeah, it'll be really fun. Really looking forward to it. Well, Van, I think until Sunday with the weekend wrap, which will be out Sunday afternoon, that's pretty much the show for today. It is. And look how cute our puppy is. (laughs) I wish you could all see him. He is so cute. All right. Love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.